I started my agency when I was 23. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm -hmm. If you're starting a company, you don't know what you're doing. So you can't expect to be good at it. And you can't expect to get everything right. And you can't expect to figure it out quickly. But if you don't give up, if you keep going, if you learn from your mistakes, if you continue to push and grow, I mean, I can't help but feel like success will come. Like it it just Mm -hmm. will come eventually, won't it? Welcome to the Coffee with Courtney podcast. I'm your host, Courtney Marie, web designer and CEO of Courtney Marie & Co. After building a multiple six-figure design agency, I wanted to create a podcast to share everything I've learned and am still learning to help you grow your business. Each week, you'll hear from me and other experts, share tips on branding, marketing, business, and so much more. So if you're ready to learn how to run a successful business and stand out online, grab your cup of coffee and let's dive in. Welcome back to the show, guys. It's been a minute since I've been recording. I batched a lot in December and super excited for you guys to listen to this new season. Uh, Today, I have with me Mark Drager. We're going to talk a lot about you know, we're going to get tactical about how to build a an agency or a business in general. But I also want to get into more talk about burnout because I've been having a lot of conversations with people in the online space going through this right now. I don't know if it's after COVID, uh, hustling and then struggling with burnout. So we're going to get into it. But first, I would love for you to introduce yourself. Welcome to the show. Oh, Courtney, thank you so much. Uh, So I'm Mark Drager. Uh, I'm the founder of an agency called Fanta Media that I started in 2006. And uh, what we do is we essentially help uh, entrepreneurs and experts and executives craft uh, the perfect combination of a really unique message, uh, a really uh, killer offer, and the look that they need to show up as to be able to sell more faster and easier. I love it. Did you always want to go into that or did it find you? <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I went to film school. So uh, I'm, I'm a little bit older. I'm turning 40 uh, in a few weeks. And so when I was in high school, I actually wanted to be an architect and an engineer. And then uh, I started facing like, like senior courses of like chemistry and even though I like physics and math and stuff, but I just got really scared. Like, honestly, I I looked at all the course load. I looked at the 10 years of becoming an engineer and all this stuff. And I was taking this film course and it just seemed like more fun. And so uh, I called, I I just got scared. And instead of, I I applied to all of the colleges and universities. And instead, I just went to film school. And I did that. When I graduated, I worked in television uh, for about a year. I worked in AV sales. I, I found my way to an internet marketing franchise. Uh, where I was at the head office in 2005, 2006. Mm-hmm. And I did that for about a year and a half. Then I went, I'm going to start my own company. And naturally, I went to film school. I was making videos. What am I going to start? I'm going to start a video company. And uh, yeah, that's how I got into this. Wow. Was it easy for you to make that switch? Did you have a lot of like resistance of like leaving safety and what you went to school for? And now like, going into the unknown. Well, so so here's the thing. When I when I started my company, I was 23 years old. My first daughter who's 16 now, uh, I've have four kids, but my first daughter, she was it was the week she was born and I remember I was holding her. I had taken a week off of work to because my wife was having, you know, our first child. 
And I was like, ah, I've been thinking about it for a while, but I'm like, I really want to start my own company. And I kind of decided, okay, you know, my wife's not making any money. <laughs> this is kind of <laughs> silly. My wife's not making any money. We have a brand new baby. I'm not earning a ton of money because I'm 23 and it's like starting early in my career. And I'm like, I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to start this company. And here was the pitch. Like, this is all I had thought about. If I work for one company and I spent all my time making videos, if I could go in and make videos for like 10 companies, I'd make like 10 times more. Mm. And, and that was my pitch to my wife. And, it, and, and that wasn't really the case. But, but when I started my, my agency, when I started Fanta, I made videos. And so I went out and I was like, who needs a video? You know, like, do you need a video? Anyone who needs a video, let me know. I make videos, right? It's like if you're a web designer, you might say like, who needs a website? I make websites. Mm -hmm. uh, if you're a graphic designer, you know, who needs a logo? I make logos. And that's really great if you're, if you're like, if people need what you have. <laughs> But, but in 2006, in 2006, we were shooting videos on tape. Uh, YouTube hadn't been purchased by Google. It was, uh, it was limited to, I think, two or three minute videos. Facebook was literally just the newest thing that no one knew. There was no social media. And we still had to like take video and make it these tiny little flash files on special servers somewhere. So it's not like... I was a little bit ahead of the curve, let's say. <laughs> and we weren't, I wasn't a big enough company with good enough work to like compete against the huge agencies. I wasn't good enough to make television commercials or broadcast commercials, which was what people were doing. And uh, so the first few years was really hard because frankly, like no one wanted to spend 10 or 20 or $30,000 on a video then. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know how to explain to people how video would help their business. Mm, and so the reason that today I'm the strategist that I am, and I'm very comfortable not having gone to university, not having an MBA, um, but, but basically doing business strategy that affects, uh, affects messaging, affects target audience research. We help connect the dots between how you need to look and what you need to say and how you need to make people feel in order to get them to take action. The reason I got very good at that was because I had to get good at that to save my business. Nobody wanted a video, but, but, they, but they did want a conversion tool or yeah. they wanted to generate more leads or they wanted to, uh, to recruit better talent or train their team or lower turnover or re do reward and recognition for people hitting the end of their careers. Like, like I, I realized that all of these businesses and all these companies and all these entrepreneurs needed a lot of stuff. And video would be a great way to, to, to share that, to, to create a story, to build emotion, to, to be able to connect with people. And as soon as I figured that out, and when I say as soon, I mean, that took me like three or four years. <laughs> I was just going to ask that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There was this great recession that kind of happened in between. And um, it took me a long time. But but you know, the first two or three years, it's like we're almost going bankrupt and we're not making any money and I don't know how to sell anything and I'm kind of slowly figuring things out. But when I figured it out, we, we were able to go like 350,000 revenue, 650 revenue, a million revenue, like year over year over year. And that's what I've now spent the last, I guess I started 16 years ago. It took four or five years to figure out. So I have at least the last 10 years where I spend pretty much all day, every day, just helping people with the strategy side of things, mm -hmm. as opposed to the actual, you know, programming or developing or shooting or editing or any of that stuff. Yeah. And I love that you actually shared that 
how long it took you, because I think a lot of people get into entrepreneurship. I talk about this all the time. It's not an overnight thing. And if you're not in it for the long haul, you shouldn't be in it. And it's, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, maybe for the person who is in a marriage or a relationship and they want to take that step. I'm sure you guys went through struggles. Like what, what, what was that like? Did, was she super supportive of you? Was, you know, were you guys nervous? Um, can you talk a little bit about that maybe? And what would you tell someone wanting to take that leap? Yeah, I had a really great conversation on my podcast. So I'm the host of a podcast, We Do Hard Things. And I had Amy Porterfield on. I don't know if you know mm-hmm. Amy or not, yep. but um, she's helped launch like 40,000 people have gone through her courses and she helps people build these really great online businesses. And we talked like really specifically about this. So um, it was incredibly hard. We, you know, we, we the first year I only made $18,000. That was our household income. Mm-hmm. And we live, I'm Canadian, we live in Toronto, which is kind of like the New York City of, of our country. It's incredibly expensive city to live in. Uh, and so, one, I was lucky because there's a lot of business and a lot of opportunities and a lot of money, but it's, it's really expensive. We weren't making any money, um, but we were young and I had a lot of energy and I really wanted to make this work. And so, I can't really ever share how hard it was. I can't really explain how depressing <laughs> and hopeless it would often feel. But every little while I was able, one, I didn't give up. And then the other thing is stuff would come along that would just give me a tiny bit of hope to keep mm. me going. The best piece of advice I got, and, and this was maybe 20 years ago, before I even started my company, but, but it still holds true today. It's going to take you about seven years to establish a business where you, where you will make, quote unquote, serious money. Interesting. And the, the reason it takes about seven years to establish a business where you make serious money is it takes you a few years to figure stuff out. It takes you a few years to scale and all of that costs money or, or you're just not really super profitable. And then you hit this point where suddenly you're like, oh, <laughs> you know, like, Oh, you, you know, we're, we're, we're doing okay because we figured out our processes or we found efficiencies or what have you. And so, you know, I started in 2006. It took me about seven years before I was not the lowest paid person in my company. I, I, I stayed as the lowest paid employee in my company. I, I had to take on some debt in order to like go hire people or hire a headhunter or build up sales. And, and, it, and I spent like three or four years slowly paying off the debt. It wasn't huge. It was like 40 or 50 grand. And it just took me a while to build up a war chest. For me, early on, if I could just have like $100,000 of cash in the bank. Now, you might be listening to this. And you may go, $100,000 of cash, that's a lot. But if you're operating you know, by we're operating a million dollar company or $650,000 company, we're spending like 50 grand a month. $100,000 cash (laughs) on hand is not a lot of runway. And so that was the other thing I had to get used to was that every time my company grew, my revenue grew, but my expenses grew and the complexity grew. And and so it it just took a lot of time for me to get good and to get comfortable and to figure stuff out. And I think for some reason, we think that it's going to be fast or it's going to be easy. I think we look at others and somehow feel like they have the secret that we don't have. But 
I spoke with a great man named Rand Fishkin, who's the founder of Moz, a software company. He started the company like 25 years ago as a as a like web development company with his mom. They went. They ended up being so bad at business that they ended up half a million dollars in debt. They ended up having to like sneak their computers out of their offices because because they could not pay the rent and they owed so much debt that that they knew they were going to kind of get foreclosed on and they had to sneak the computers out. They managed slowly to turn their company around. And what I mean slowly, I mean like five years. They managed to pay off their debt. They managed to build a software that people really wanted. They managed to turn it into a 10 or $15 million company and almost sell it to HubSpot. Rand was able to leave the senior role and turn it over to board and they exited for like $50 million. Wow. And so this is like a great success story if you, if you shrink down 20 years of work. But what I learned from this, which I didn't quite realize, and he shares it in his book, Lost and Founder. But when I talked to him, I realized, oh, um, he didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> like, like he never did it before. He hadn't done it before. I started my agency when I was 23. I didn't know what I was doing. Mm-hmm. If you're starting a company, you don't know what you're doing. So you can't expect to be good at it. And you can't expect to get everything right. And you can't expect to figure it out quickly. But if you don't give up, if you keep going, if you learn from your mistakes, if you continue to push and grow, I mean, I can't help but feel like success will come. Like it, it just mm-hmm. will come eventually, won't it? Yeah. Yeah, I... I uh... It's definitely a big one um, because you go to school and also like going into debt, you go into debt to go to school. Why wouldn't you like invest in coaching or mentorship or whatever it may be to build a business or outsource? I think that's one thing that I noticed growing my business. Okay. My revenue was going up, but then my expenses were going up and I'm like, wait, this isn't what I signed up for. (laughs) And so then you have to, you know, you constantly have to reassess what your expenses are. And it's just a, you learn and grow on this journey every single day. (laughs) It's not a linear process by any means. Because wouldn't you I, say like you have good years, good, bad years? Like it's not, Oh yeah. I guess from your oh, experience, yeah. did it constant, like always go up? Um, so, I mean, I can share, I can share our revenue pretty openly. Uh, so it was like, I think the first year we, I managed to do like close to a hundred grand finally. So the first five months, I didn't really figure out how to do anything. I hired a coach because I realized I'm about to run out of money. I'm about to run out of personal money. I borrowed $20,000 from my mom to start this company. I was going to run out of that. And so we hadn't really sold anything. So when I did 100,000 revenue in our first year, that was really just in six months after hiring a business coach and going, oh, (laughs) I need to figure out how to sell something. And then uh, I think we did 180 the second year. And then uh, we may have been a little over 200. And then the Great Recession happened. And there was, I mean, that year, like talk about, hard, there was a time where for three months, we had zero projects. Wow. Zero work, zero projects, zero sales, like like nothing. What um, were you feeling during that point? <laughs> um, so at that <laughs> point, I was three years in. Uh, so I was like maybe 25 or 26. My wife and I had two kids. Um, my, 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 so the second kid we had at the time had just been born a few months earlier. And we bought our first house right before the recession. Oh and so gosh. now I had a mortgage uh, and 
uh, I had two kids and my wife and no one's working. And the, the, the real depth of the recession for people who, you know, 2008 is kind of when things got a bit rocky, but in January, February, and March of 2009, it was terrible. And I remember calling my mom up. Uh, I, I remember calling her and I said, I have like nothing to show for the last three years of effort and work. Um, I don't, I don't really have like a portfolio. I hadn't really done anything that felt like it was an accomplishment. I did. I, I we had used up all of our money at that point, and um, and I, I'd, I'd constantly been banking on like the future. That's what we entrepreneurs do. We mm-hmm. we invest in ourselves or we bet on ourselves because we know we can sacrifice today for a greater tomorrow. Most people won't do that. Most people will not sacrifice today for the better tomorrow. And that's why they don't end up with the better tomorrow. So I was spent three years sacrificing, sacrificing. I watched my friends go from like patting me on the back to, you know, them catching up and passing me an income, being able to do stuff. And uh, I called my mom and I was like, I just, I just, I don't know. Like, what, what was it all worth it for? And she said, listen, Mark, just stop and go do something else. Like, there's no shame in having tried it like just just go do something else and i said oh, yeah but i feel like i'm always going to regret that i only gave this like two or three mm-hmm. years so i said let me just give this one last kick at the can and this many years later it's 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 still that kick right i i went out and because we just bought a house <laughs> we took on more debt so i I, I against my house now, I borrowed fifty thousand dollars, and uh, and I don't even know how. I remember being surprised. I was like, "Wait a minute! You can buy a house and take on more debt on top of that? How does that even work?" But somehow I went from like, "Okay, now we can even over over mortgage the house," and I hired a headhunter, and I knew I needed help with sales, so I hired a salesperson, and then six weeks later he quit, and so I was like, "Oh, now we had even less to show for it." Then the headhunter found a different salesperson for me. We brought him on and I didn't pay myself for six months. I would take my paycheck. I would take my paycheck. I would pay the taxes on it and I would just slip it into my desk and I wouldn't deposit it. And I did that for six months. And my wife kept saying like, are you going to like, are we going to get some money soon? Just, I need more time. And I paid my, I paid my rent. I paid my crew. I paid my, uh, my salesperson. I paid every single bill on time, every time, but I just wouldn't pay myself. And I did that for Mm -hmm. six months until finally I felt like we had, I think we had made our first sale and it was through a connection he had. Um, He helped me figure out how to sell better. He helped me figure out how to, how to target people better, how to explain what, what we wanted better. We rebuilt our website. Like we just needed a whole bunch of stuff. Cause you got to remember, I was like a video guy. I wasn't a business owner, even though I was a few years in, I was a video guy. And so this was a huge lesson for me because when people come to me and they say, Mark, I want to build an agency or I want to do what you've done, or uh, I want to build something, I always have to ask them, like, what do you really want to build? Mm. Because if you're a freelancer, like if, 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 you are, if you are a photographer and you love photography, you love the processing, you love the shooting, or you like some part of the process, working with people, you just love it, then you probably don't want to build a multi-million dollar photography company because you won't spend any time shooting photos. Mm-hmm. If you're a graphic designer, you probably don't want to build a huge design agency because you're not going to spend any time designing anything. And so 
you can you can do what what I wanted to do, what I've done, but here's the truth. The truth is I I I hated every part of the production process. Um, I always wanted to build something with a, a, a big team because frankly, I had uh, um, expectations higher than what I could do. Like, like I, I went to film school and I was a pretty good editor and I'm a great producer, but I'm, I'm not good at lighting and I'm not good at shooting and I'm not good at composition and I'm not really that technical and can't do any motion graphic design or anything else. Um, Multilingual stuff is a huge thing we do. We do tons of multilingual projects because I realized, oh, we could suddenly do English and Spanish and German and Chinese and like Mandarin and we could do all these things. No one else wants to do it. By wanting to be the person who had a big company and not the person who wanted to do the work, that made me pretty <laughs> well situated to build a big company. Yeah. So, so what kind, like if you're a freelancer, you still have a company. You're just, you're just as much of an entrepreneur as I am who wants to have a team. And you're just as much of an entrepreneur as someone who's running a 20 or $30 million company. It's just, what do you want to spend your time doing? And what is your skill sets? Yeah. And I mean, I'm glad that you brought that up because that's something that I've been going through recently. It's like, because I talked to a mentor and he's like, you have to choose. Do you want to keep designing or do you want to go like scale and go this way? And I'm like, but there's got to be another way. Uh, yeah. And so you get to a point in your business and you have to make a decision. What would, what advice would you give to someone? Let's say they want to keep being a freelancer, but they want to still hit those 20, 30K months. Do you think it's possible for them as a freelancer? Or do you think if someone wants to keep growing, scaling as an agency is the only way? So, so what, what do you want is should not, what should you do or what could you do or what will people pay you for? Because I, I built myself a trap. I actually built myself as, as our agency grew to a million year over year plus to like before COVID, we were 2 million revenue, 24 full-time staff. I was spending a lot of time on stuff that I didn't enjoy. I'm talking legal, finance, admin, um, <laughs> negotiations, uh, admin, hiring, firing, like just like I'm a really great strategist. I'm a really great problem solver. I'm not a great operator. I'm not great at operations. But so so yes, you have to pick what you want. But here's the thing: there, there's a certain like stay small and keep it all is is one of the greatest old school lessons, right? If you stay small, you keep it all. You can actually earn way more income and have way more freedom and way higher quality of life with less stress if you really love doing the work. Let's, let's go back to a graphic designer. A graphic designer who loves graphic design, you can keep your volume low. You can move up your rates. You can become a niche player. You can work anywhere in the world and you can build a non, uh, what do we call it? A non-crisis business where you mm. don't have clients constantly calling you and constantly freaking out. You can do that. Uh, or if you want that 20 or 30K a month all the time, you can bring on a few juniors and you can start to outsource the work to them. But now you're moving into a creative director role, mm -hmm. right? And that's still an important role. If you like project managing, if you like creative directing, if you like being the one who sits at a slightly higher level where you got to make these editorial decisions and these creative decisions and you got to comment and you got to feedback and you got to figure out how to get other people to do the things that you need them to do or want them to do, then that's fine too. You're still a freelancer. No one has to see that there's people behind you under you doing this work. Now, maybe the next step would be you partnering with someone who's maybe a really great salesperson. 
or a really great operator. Maybe they're the creative director and you're going to be the lead designer and you're going to hire a few freelancers. Or maybe you're going to bring in copywriting services because that goes so well hand in hand with design. Or maybe you're going to bring in a programmer or you're going to partner, right? Like that's the next level of a slightly bigger business. But as you can see, you're giving up control because you need to bring in a partner or you're moving up the business. And then if you want to build an agency, every agency needs a few different departments or capabilities, right? You need the ability to, to, to generate business. So business development or sales or like you, you need to be able to close business. You need account management, which could kind of be like sales, but you need once the business is closed, selling is easy. Keeping clients is tremendously hard. Mm. And I don't think people quite realize this. We've done so many, we've done 3,400 projects. We, we've done like a little over 13 million in, in, create, in, in revenue where people have paid us to produce stuff for them. And so I always say like, if you're a great project manager, you do not need strong account management. If you're a great account manager, you don't need strong project management because account management is just helping reframe and talk people through the challenges and make sure that they're cool. And it's just like, you're constantly on like damage control kind of and repositioning all the time, which means things can be super sloppy because <laughs> mm-hmm. you're so good. You're so good at making people feel like this is all part of the process. This is awesome. Don't worry about that. That's cool. I've got that. No problem. If you don't have great account management, like you're not telling people what's going on or why it's happening or what, what we're thinking or all the work we're doing behind the scenes or everything that went into the project and continually building value. You got to have great project management then. Here's the work back schedule. Here's the date. Here's the next step. Here's what we need. Okay. So an agency needs to be able to sell, sell, needs to be able to have accounts or project management. And then, and then, and then it needs to be able to actually do the work itself, like actually deliver the work, whatever that might be. And if you look at every business, these are kind of the same things, but this is just on the client delivery side. Now you have operations and you have finance and you have accounting and you have um, hiring and you have firing and you have culture and you have all of these other things that go into running any type of business you need to run. And so um, you have to decide what kind of business you want, what you want to spend all your time doing, and, and really the, the, the areas that are your skill sets. I've learned I'm, I'm really great at account management and selling. Not very good at project managing, <laughs> even though I can do it. I'll create a Thank really goodness detailed for ClickUp. <laughs> I just don't. I just don't like chasing people, right? And I need. Yeah. And I don't like chasing people. And I need everyone on my team to chase me all the time. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's funny. I used to feel like a hypocrite, and then now I realized, oh, I'm not a hypocrite. I'm. <laughs> I own the business. I get to do whatever I want. A little hypocritical. <laughs> Wait. Do you know? Do you uh, know your enneagram number? Yep. What? Are you a seven? You, uh, I'm a six with a five wing. Actually, I'm, oh, okay. I'm the least likely to be an entrepreneur. And on my um, in my Myers Briggs, uh, my Myers Briggs, I'm an INTP, which is also the least likely to be an entrepreneur. Interesting. Which doesn't make me feel good because <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid of everything. Like sixes are, I don't know how deep into the enneagram you are. I'm super, super deep, but um, sixes are afraid of everything all the time. Well, isn't five like super analytical? So you analyze everything. Like yeah, and very energy or... focused, super yeah. energy focused. So fives are like fives are like um, you know if you go to if you go to uh, to the airport or a conference or something and you have your cell phone and you know that you can't plug it in for the whole day, 
you don't want to waste your energy, your, your, your cell phone battery on stuff that if, if, if later you might need it. Fives yeah. are so energy focused that when something new comes along that they did not kind of anticipate, like they didn't anticipate putting energy into or time or focus into, it throws them off like crazy. And then on top of that, they're always kind of like storing energy in the background just in case they need it later. <laughs> and so I have a real, I'm a six with a really heavy five waves. <laughs> wow. What? So uh, not to go well, too what, deep well, into what, this. what are you? What are you now? I got to know. I'm a one wing oh, nine. Oh, perfectionist. Yeah. Ooh, one wing nine. Uh, you're in the anger triad. With, yeah. Uh, but like I've noticed a switch. Like I was in the unhealthy one stage. And once I got to like the healthy, I became more like a nine. I'm like, wow, this is so much more freeing. <laughs> does, does our audience know the Enneagram? Or are they from like, yes. do you talk about it enough? Okay, great. Yes. Yeah. I did a whole like episode uh, with my life coach on it. So we are always geeking out over it. Wow. It comes up in conversations just in life. Like, oh, what's your Enneagram? <laughs> so I, um, I, I don't have the, I have the book back on my shelf, but um, I got into the Enneagram through, uh, gosh, I don't even remember who it was. It was some old podcast, like over 10 years ago. And at the time, um, you know, uh, Ian, Ian Cohen's book, like a road back to you hadn't been written yet, like a lot of books and it hadn't quite exploded. So I have the textbook, like I have the original textbook and it was like, I'm flipping through it and trying to make sense of it. And then when Susan Stabile, um, I think Suzanne Stabile's her name, um, uh, came out with the podcast and, and I started getting into it more. I was like, Oh, this is so much easier to understand <laughs> than reading a textbook on it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's so helpful to be able to have conversations with people and then also goes into hiring, which I always recommend like having, I don't know if that's, someone asked me if that was legal to have people take personality tests. And now I'm uh, like, you, I don't I, know. I, I don't know. I mean, that might be on a state level. Uh, we, we, we do use the Enneagram, but we don't have them take tests because the Enneagram is notoriously inaccurate. Like, like 70 or 80% of people who take one of those tests misidentify because it's not about the actions that you take. It's about the intentions behind the actions. Yeah. And so we are all human. You know, my, like my wife is a four um, and I'm a six. And yet we're, there's some way things we're so similar with. But, but she's in, you know, she, she's in the, the, the shame triad and I'm in the fear-based one. Mm -hmm. She lives in the past. I live in the future. Um, and the reason why we do what we do or think what we think is so different. This is the trouble with the Enneagram. It's like so enlightening once you hit it, but it's not about what you do or what you feel because we're all human. It's about mm -hmm. the motivation and intention behind what we do and feel that is really unique. And so um, I, what I do is I have a series of questions from having listened to so many podcasts that I realized I can ask, uh, I, I ask a bunch of different questions and then I can usually figure out. You're like, I, I think you're this one. <laughs> Yeah, I won't even tell them because they won't know. But but in an interview process, I'll actually start to ask leading questions. I'll start to say That's things a good like, idea. I'll start to say things like, um, gosh, does it ever bother you that it feels like you're always there for everyone? Like you're always putting everyone first. You're you're always giving them space. You're always cheering them on, and and yet no one ever goes, okay, you know, it's now your turn. Like like, what do you want, Courtney? It's your turn. What do you want? Yes, I've been waiting for that question. No, I'm just well, so so I know that if you're a nine, that that nines live their life kind of um, on standby. 
Mm-hmm. Um, they are some of the, the, the they're peacemakers. They're some of the greatest uh, people to have for you. They're great cheerleaders. They're always hardworking. But there's this there's this anger, the seething anger under the surface because no one puts them first. Mm-hmm. Because if you look at all the other numbers, none of the other numbers would think to put number nines first because none of the other numbers need to be put first. They self-advocate. Mm-hmm. But a nine won't self-advocate because they are waiting for someone to say, it's now your turn. Yeah. No other number would think to say it's now your turn because <laughs> we all just tell people what we want. Yeah. Nines won't tell people what they want, which is so frustrating sometimes. <laughs> so if you love a nine and know a nine, you need to say, what do you want? Like mm-hmm. it's it's your turn. But if you don't know that, then then you won't. Or if you're a nine, you need to be able to say, you know what? There's nothing wrong with self-advocating because everyone else does it too. Yeah. So these are the kind of leading questions I would ask. And then I know that I can, I, there's certain numbers that I just can't work with. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, is one, is one, one of them? <laughs> no, no. Um, no, I think ones are great. So, you know, one is a perfectionist. Um, you have the, the inner, the inner critic that's constantly going. Um, yeah. but, but ones are really, really great because as, as perfectionists, it's like, there's a right way and a wrong way to do things. And they're going to definitely want to do the right way. Uh, they get really angry when everyone else is cutting corners and cheating along the way. Because yes. They're putting so much energy into like doing it the right way. My son is a one. Um, so, so I can definitely work with ones. You just need to realize that, that their anger and frustration isn't about you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, about, it's about that they're just working so hard to be the people that they need to be all the time for everyone. And when something goes wrong, it's like just showing them that they're not good enough. Like, yeah. like, oh, further proof that I'm not good enough. So I spend a lot of time, um, if I'm working with them, just reminding them that like, hey, it's okay to be angry. Right? Like, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing wrong with anger. And you, you, you don't have to be perfect. And you can't be perfect all the time. And sometimes it's great to make mistakes. Like, but mostly I just feel bad because you have this inner critic in your head all the time. <laughs> <laughs> but that's so good that you know this because I, I'm sure it makes you an even better parent to be able to communicate with your kids and like see situations they're going through and be take a step back and be like, ooh, this is how they're operating. This is how I need to communicate with them. Yeah, I, I have to say, so So uh, the, the book, The Road Back to You, it's not the most technical, but I went through and I highlighted for each number um, anything that I felt gave me insight to them. So, so for example, I, as number six, I tend to be friends with eights. I don't know why. My boyfriend is a, an eight. Yeah. The challenger. The challenger. But, but here's most eights and, and sixes are not in relationships because eights get frustrated at, at how timid and fearful and, and count, you know, like, um, how sixes want to be loyal and sixes just want everyone to get along and sixes want everything to be fair. And, um, and we will, we were devil's advocate. So you tell us to go right. We're going to tell you why we should go left. You say, <laughs> well, okay, go left. We'll go. Well, what, about, what about right? Like right looks really good too. And so eights tend to just get like so frustrated with us, but, but for whatever reason, I'm friends with a lot of eights because I love their courage and their determination and, and the fact that they can just decide they're going to do something and they just do it in this like mm-hmm. almost clueless kind of way. Like just they're like, yeah, I decided to do it. So I went and did it. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like, well, what, what about, like, well, did you what think about, about this? Things that could go wrong? <laughs> and what about all these things? And, and so I'm friends with eights. Um, I don't even remember where I was going with this. <laughs> uh, but I'm, I love I'm it. Friends, I'm friends with eights, a lot of eights, but, um, 
Oh yeah. So, so I went through the book, I went through the, the book and, and like looking at eights, I realized, oh my goodness, like, like you've spent the last 10 years in marketing and entrepreneurship telling people to be vulnerable. Eights who make up the vast majority of entrepreneurial leaders are anything but vulnerable. Mm-hmm. They worry, this is again, like the nines won't self-advocate and none of the other numbers will go to nine and say, it's now your turn because none of us would think of it. Eights won't be vulnerable because they worry that if, if they share too much with you, you will take that and use it against them. You will, yeah. you will use this, this vulnerability to hurt them None of the other numbers would think to do that because mm-hmm. none of us would take these, maybe a number two, but none of us will take these things and then proactively use it to hurt people. So we would never think that this is the weight that they're carrying. My father-in-law is an eight and, and he is some of the hard, he's the hard, one of the hardest guys to work with. But let me tell you, if you're in trouble, he's like the first person to have your back. Yeah. He doesn't, it doesn't matter if he agrees with you or not, just out of principle, he will have your back and agree with you. And, and so when I started to learn of the weight that eights carry, oh, like my heart like breaks for just like, I, like imagining living that way, imagining living as a one where you feel like every single thing you do is a reflection of whether you're good enough or not. If you're in an unhealthy mm-hmm. place, living as a three where as you know, as you walk into every room, you, you scan the room, you get a sense of who you need to be in that moment to help others, and you become that person. But mm-hmm. if you spend all your time becoming the person you need to be for everyone else, you don't know who you really are. Or being a number two and realizing that you need to be needed so badly to, to, to feel needed and to feel like you're helping and to feel like you're showing up for people that when everybody else is busy living their life or whatever, you might feel like, Again, an eight, we would never think to do that. But, you know, so like as you learn each of these numbers, what I took away from it most was not only like how to adjust who I need to be for that person. I'm not really great at it yet, but mostly it's like, oh my goodness, we are all carrying so much. And, and we're all uh, different. And like we all operate different. And it just like helps us have more compassion for each other, which I think the world needs, like just more love and compassion. and understanding everyone wants to feel understood <laughs> yeah I so i use enneagram at work for team and for relationships and for friends and i use it mostly to try and understand i mean there's a basic principle everyone does everything for a good reason mm-hmm. now they think it's a good reason you know like 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 a drug addict will go and do all kinds of terrible things but for them it's a good reason they need to to, to feed their addiction to quiet the voices quiet the pain quiet whatever so Everyone does everything for a reason. So now I spend more time actually trying to figure out what their reason is. Mm. Because if I can understand who they are and how they think and what they value and what they fear, if I can understand these things, then I can understand their rationale or their motivations or their reason. And then I can either go like, well, I don't agree with that and just let it go. Or I can go, okay, I could see how they believe something I don't believe. I could see how. And now this is going to come all full circle. This is me being a number six, playing devil's advocate. And this is what makes us great brand strategists. Because <laughs> now if we think about a sales or a marketing or a branding situation, all of the stuff I've been talking about can be applied to 
build a great business, to, mm-hmm. to create offers, to position your company, to sell whatever you need to sell. It's all the work I've done in Enneagram or the work I've done on myself or the work I've done with thought leadership or psychology or sociology or studies or all of that stuff has just simply made me uh, a better marketer. Yeah. Um, okay. You mentioned a book. Do you have any other, cause I know our listeners, they love the Enneagram. Do you have any other resources that you've, that really talks about the, the why and motives more? The Enneagram journey podcast, I would very much recommend it's, uh, it's hosted by Susan Stabil, uh, who is the co-author of the road back to you with Ian Cohen. And, uh, it's, it's all interview based. It's all story based. But if you listen to it enough, at least for myself, I was able to, as I listened to it over several years, I would pick up these little things and I would see these common elements and I would start to connect dots. And that's where I got most of my questions from, you know, when I'm yeah. able to assess who, who is what. One of the questions she likes to give is, um, you know, so here's a question I always give for number sevens. I don't tell them it's for number seven, but, you know, so let's imagine, Courtney, that it's Thursday night and you're going out to the movies and you're seeing, you're seeing a new movie. Um, you're going out with a, a group of friends and you have a great time. It's amazing. The next day you're at work and a different friend who wasn't in this friend group who saw the movie with you was like, hey, we're going out to the movies tonight. It's the exact same movie that you saw the night before. Do you tell them, I just saw this movie last night. Have fun, guys. <laughs> or do you go, hey, what time? Let me know and I'll be there. That question I got from Suzanne, I got from this podcast because frankly, a whole bunch of numbers would be like, have fun. I just saw that movie last night. But a number seven doesn't <laughs> care if they're going to go see the same movie. <laughs> they frankly don't. It's a totally different friend group. It's a, an experience they might miss out on. They, they, they got to be there. Yeah. That's so funny. Oh, I'm so glad that we talked about this because I'm going to go to those resources and start listening to the podcast and get the book. Yeah, it's fun. I love it. Um, okay. So coming back to full circle to, I know we have a few minutes left, but I really want to get into, um, can you share some of the struggles, maybe one or two struggles that you went through in the beginning? I know we talked about that, but then how did it change when you built a multi-million dollar business? Like how did those struggles, how, how are they different? How are they similar? Yeah. So the initial struggle that every business has is how do I sell stuff? We don't think that that's our challenge, right? We think, oh, what does the website look like? And what's our tagline? And what do we say? And how are we going to deliver it? And what if we're not good enough? And like all these things. But um, if it's a product business, if it's a service business, if it's B2C, if it's B2B, it doesn't matter. Your number one challenge is how do I sell stuff? And it took me a long time to figure that out. And we are currently going through a bit of a, uh, we're going through a huge shift in our agency because COVID destroyed our agency, um, just destroyed our revenue. Uh, We had to completely pivot. We had to completely shift. Uh, And I was saying to my COO this morning, like we're one year into this shift. I told him last time I built Fanta, it took me four years to figure this out. We're one year in and we figured it out already. So great. It's not going to take me four years this time, but it still took me a year to figure this out. And so the best piece of advice I've gotten from, from countless entrepreneurs, really successful people, and the advice I would share with everyone is go out and sell stuff. You are never going to feel ready. You are never going to have the team. You're never going to have the resources. You won't have the systems. You won't have the processes. You won't 
frankly, like you can't even wait for it to be perfect because as soon as you sell something, you're going to realize, oh, people don't even want what I thought they wanted. They want this other thing. Oh, cool. Oh, this all this stuff I was offering, they don't even care. I can cut that. Oh, I need to figure out a way to simplify. Like you're going to learn from doing. And the other thing is when you sell stuff, uh, people give you money and you can take that money and you can go and, and generate profit and reinvest in yourself. So that's problem number one, or that's challenge number one. Now, once you've started selling stuff, things are going to get a pretty bananas, right? You're going to go through the selling, delivery, the selling, delivery cycle. You're going to have to scale. You're going to have to figure out there's not going to be enough money. But if you're selling stuff consistently, you now have the first thing that you need to leverage to grow. You're going to need team. You're going to need people. You're going to need resources. You might run into legal issues. If you're a real company, you might have distribution or warehouses. Like You're going to have stuff, but people will believe in you. Banks will lend you money. People will believe in you. You can hire. You can bring on partners. You can recruit team members. You can, you can literally promise that the payoff will come a year or two down the line if people are constantly asking you to do stuff, which is sales. So you build sales, and then you leverage that, that demand, that proof that people want what you have to basically now try to do as much as you can, as quickly as you can with the least amount of resources. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and that might be a year, that might be three years. And then on the other side of that, that's why I say it kind of takes seven years to make serious money. And when I mean serious money, I mean like... I think on year seven, I went from the lowest paid employee to the highest paid employee, and I pulled off out enough cash out of the company to just pay off my mortgage, just like single payment. Mm -hmm. so, so you need to first build sales, and then you need to use those sales to, to go out and prove to people that the vision of what you're building and get people to just, you just make it up as you go along, you scramble for as long as possible, and you... and during that time, you're going to start to hire up people. You're going to start to see what you need to fix. You're going to fix those things. And then you're going to get to a point where it's like it's now calmed down a bit. You now have some systems and you still have sales coming in and you have a team who can help develop, deliver for you or you know, things of, things of uh, the, the choppy waters, the craziness is now calmed down. And as soon as it calms down, you now run into like, you almost don't know what challenges are next, but the next challenges are going to be, what do you want to do with this? You now have a business that you can keep that size because it's calmed down. It's now profitable. You now have the team, you have the systems, you figured things out, you've known how to sell things. You can stay there. You might be bored. You might want to change. You might want to buy a second business. You might want to grow it. You might be totally happy with this size. But if you don't go through those kind of years or steps, every business goes through it. But if you don't go through it, you're going to either get stuck at the early stages because you just frankly aren't focusing enough on selling stuff, even though you, you feel like you're not ready. Or people get stuck in the madness of the middle where they're just constantly like scrambling nonstop. And that's where burnout happens. Or in the next step, when things calm down, that's when you have to start asking yourself, what, who, who do you need to become? You know, if you need mm. to become more of a CEO or a leader, if you need to bring on, um, maybe make some uncomfortable investments in operations or a COO or a CFO for finance, maybe you need to get uncomfortable and start acquiring your competitors, like buying other businesses and rolling them into what you're doing. I don't know. It's everybody's path is different and it depends on what you want to build. 
But for me, I spent way too long not figuring out sales. I didn't realize how important it was. I then spent a long time because I would never, I wouldn't hire someone or make an investment until things had been consistently crazy for six months. So here's an example. Like I wouldn't hire another editor until I was editing like pretty much every night until two in the morning, every single day, seven days a week for six months straight. Because I was so sure after the recession, I was so sure that this was just a fluke or this was a little window of time or think we were just getting lucky. And so I use this where it's like, I'm not going to hire a second editor until my first editor is crazy for six months. I'm not going to hire a motion graphic designer until our freelancers are overwhelmed for six months. Like to me, I needed always the proof of like six months demand to make sure it wasn't a fluke or a bubble or a little window of time. And that served me in some ways. But uh, now I realized I'll, I'll just, I just need a month or two. I'll make the hire. And if it doesn't work out, I'll, I'll shrink down again. I'll downsize. Um, yeah. I didn't think that way the first time. And so it was many years of just craziness. Um, and then the next challenge was, what's my role in this? If I'm not doing billable hours, if like I, I, I used to know as a, as a, as a freelancer or as an employee or as someone who was running a small business, I knew that every hour I was delivering for a client, I was making money. But if I had, when I, as soon as I hit a team of seven people and I pulled myself out of the delivery process, I suddenly in my head went from someone who was making money to someone who was now drawing a salary out of the company and not helping the company make any money. What does that mean? What do I do? How, like, what is my value that I bring? Am I comfortable even with that? And so all of this stuff takes a ton of time to work through. But here's what I'll say, because I've made it sound pretty rough, but, but this is what's amazing and awesome about it. Life is, as short as life is, life is also very long. Um, this will prepare you for any career you choose to go down, any type of company you choose to go down. Once you've been through it, I've, I've now been through two recessions or three recessions. I've like, who would have thought a pandemic would have happened? And I survived that. I have to believe that, that I can pretty much navigate through anything that's thrown our way now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm getting more confidence. I've seen it before. Every time that I've had to rebuild, and I've had to pivot and rebuild now maybe four times. You know, the first time was four years figuring it out, and then and then like like now it's only a year for us to figure stuff out. And so it's getting shorter and shorter and shorter, which is amazing. And here's the last thing that no one really talks about: we all want really awesome things, right? Like maybe you want freedom of calendar or schedule. Maybe you want freedom of income where you never have to worry about money again. You can do whatever you want. Maybe you want to be really well connected and have like a great network. Maybe you want your podcast to have a million or two million subscribers. Maybe you want a TV show. Maybe, maybe you, want to, um, you want to have a company worth $50 million. Maybe you want to have whatever. Like pick what you want. Whatever it is you want, you can't get unless you're the type of person who can show the world that you can build something. Mm. And people don't talk about this, right? Like when I, I'm on my third podcast now, and frankly, my network and my guests that I have on We Do Hard Things are, are pretty bananas. Like, like, frankly, the people we have on, if, like, if you look at our numbers and other things, they're solid. But frankly, the people we have on are way higher quality in class than I deserve to have on my podcast. 
But the reason I have them is because I have a really great team. And the reason I have a really great team is because the, when, I went, when I put the team together, they saw that I had built an agency. So they know that I was capable of building a $2 million agency. They know that I've run my agency for 16 years. They know that I've worked on 3,400 projects. They, they, so even when I'm feeling doubtful, or even when I'm not sure about myself, the fact that I built it once gives me more credibility than the person who has a dream of building something the first time. That's so good. And, and people don't talk about that, right? They don't talk about it very much. Instead, they go like, like, I want my podcast to be awesome because we're working towards a, like a Netflix special or a YouTube show, or like we're working towards something that's more like um, Discovery Plus documentary style. I want to travel the world and meet the most interesting people. I'm not going to get that show going from school to that or from quitting my corporate job to that or what have you. Like I, but me being able to build a really great agency and a really great company and earn enough money to maybe self-produce a, a pilot and then use that pilot to be able to pitch this and pitch it. Like everything that I will have in my future and everything I have today is because I built the company the first time. And I can leverage that until the day I die. And yeah. nobody talks about that. <laughs> they don't. I mean, I have... I haven't heard anyone say it like that. And that makes a lot of sense because if you can build something, you can build another thing. And then, like you said, you pivoted four times. Well, if you made it work once, then you'll be able to do it faster and faster the next time. There's so much that you learn in building anything, really. Yeah. Like, let's, let's look at someone like Damon John, right? I, I love his books, right? Shark Tank guy, founder of FUBU. If you go through Audible, he's got some great biographies and stories and that break down his stuff. But like, um, I'm not going to talk ill of Damon John. He seems like a really great guy. But in his book, he talks about the fact that a few years ago he was invited into a room in San Francisco or South by Southwest. I think you're in you're in Austin. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. So he was invited into a room in South by Southwest with like the the world's hundred 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 greatest um, VCs, entrepreneurs, and minds. And they went around the room and talked about where they thought the industry was going, just industry in general. And he goes, in his book, he says, you know, I shared my thoughts, but I realized as I was sharing my thoughts, like it was, it was table stakes. Like it was unimpressive. It was not that revolutionary. And he could not keep up with the way that these people were thinking. Now, so there's two ways to look at this. Damon John has respect because he's well-connected and he's well-connected because he has the TV show and he has the TV show because he built a great company and he built a great company because of all of his hustle and all of his drive and because of where he was and what he did. And, and the FUBU story is, is bananas. If you haven't heard it, you have to go back and listen to it. But frankly, he, he didn't have what he needed to be in that room today. Like he didn't bring the, the, the most interesting information to drive the most value to that room that day. And he talks about that. He's like, oh man, I got to really up my game and surround myself and do all these other things. But he got invited to the room because of what he had built the first time, which mm -hmm. led to the second thing, which led to the third thing, which led to the fourth thing, which led to the fifth thing. So go build something, build sales, figure out how to deliver on those sales, Get everything stable, and that will give you the foundation you need for freedom or for income or for time or, or just leverage it to the next thing. And if you connect enough of those pieces together every five years or 10 years or 20 years over the course of your life, 
you'll find that you'll look back on having one of the most adventurous and successful lives ever simply from moving from thing to thing. But you have to just keep building, give yourself room to crush something or, or have COVID happen and fail a little bit. And then you just come back. And yeah. And yeah. I love that. Um, real quick, I do have a question about burnout because it's just talked a lot about, uh, especially like online content wise. Do you have any tips for burnout? I'm sure as many years of you, as you've had the agency, you've probably experienced it. What's it feel like, or what would be the difference between feeling bored or burnout maybe? And like, how have you worked what? through that? What a great question. Uh, boredom uh, wrecks more businesses than anything else. And I, I've realized that I through I've realized that I have ADHD. Most entrepreneurs do. Yeah. Um, I, I get bored incredibly quickly. Uh, and I, I said to my team last week, it's like, it's so weird. I'm as afraid of change as I am. I'm so addicted to change that I change things that don't even need to be changed just because <laughs> I'm bored. And so boredom is very, very dangerous for entrepreneurs because because building a team, building a company, building sustainable like sustainable sales and building profitability and all these things take time. And if you keep changing everything all the time, there's, there, you're, you're just never going to get ahead. So you got to slow down. You got to stop changing things. You got to not get bored. Now, burnout, on the other hand, I am not the expert to speak about this, even though I experienced probably some of the worst burnout ever. Um, and that came in the form of like by 2018, 2019. Built a team, multi-million dollars, 24 people. But I was not, I did not invest enough in systems, in, in team, in operations. I was bored. So I kept changing the company. I was alienating my team members. I was not being the leader I needed them to be. And as I continued to like try to make it better and more interesting and different, and how do we customize? Blah, blah, I kept going into things that I could do, my strengths. But 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 my team wasn't ready for any of these changes, and they couldn't keep up. So the more we did, the more I had to just like let them do their thing, and ignore them because I was so busy doing my thing, and scrambling. And uh, I don't I don't know how to explain it other than like it not only hurt the business, it not only alienated my entire team. It got to the point where it's like I I frankly had to burn the, the agency to the ground. Because I had been such a poor manager or leader for my team that, that they were completely disattached. The culture really suffered. We weren't delivering the, the quality of work that I wanted to deliver. I was apologizing to clients all the time because you know, we're doing 180 or 200 projects a year. And we have 30 to 40 projects on the go at any given time. And every time a mistake happens, I'm the leader. So I'm calling to say, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, client. I'm, I'm sorry we made this mistake. And, and when, you, when, when that's going on for like a few months, you can kind of grit your teeth and get through it. But like by a year or two of just like all these little mistakes, and they're all small things, but you know, it's still the buck ends with me. Um, work was not fun. I didn't want to go in. I was having panic attacks. Um, and so the reason I'm not great to talk about burnout is even though I realize now that I had it, I didn't, I didn't know that at the time other than I said for about a year and a half to two years to my privately to my friends and my wife, I, I don't want to do this but I don't know how to replace my income. Mm. And I would say like, oh, if I can just replace my income doing something else, I would do that. And that's not the right way to, to think about it actually, because that's very short-sighted. It's to, it's to assume that I can like make this big change in my life, but have it not cost me anything and not sacrifice anything. Mm-hmm. And it was only so, okay, COVID hits 2020, 
it's now spring of 2021 where I finally go like, I can't do this anymore. And I don't care what it costs. I don't care what I have to do. I don't care what I lose. Like total rock bottom. Like, like I can't do this anymore. And I was so burnt out of thinking about advertising or marketing or production or delivery or team or being an entrepreneur or anything. It's just like, like I, I did not want to be responsible for other people's budgets or projects anymore. Like I just mm-hmm. could not carry that weight of responsibility anymore. Um, and so let's, let's put this into perspective. You know, I started probably getting burnt out in 2018. It's 2021 that I'm finally realizing that I'm hitting rock bottom. That's a lot of years of, of struggle. Mm-hmm. And then when I hit rock bottom, it took me six months of kind of hating everything. Like I wouldn't even put on, um, I have these hats that say Fanta. I couldn't even bring myself to wear the hats because it just felt oh, wow. like I can't, I, 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 I can't, I hate this thing so much. I can't even represent it. And then in the fall, um, I sat with a friend and he said, Mark, you know, like you're really still really good at this. And you know, you don't have to build a business the way you built it. You don't have to operate it the way you operated it. You don't have to do everything that you said you once did, right? Like, like figure out what you loved about it and what you're great at it. And just, just only do that and do nothing else. And so that then took me three or four months to figure out. And that takes me to last year when I said, it's now taking us a year, right? So 2018, I really started getting burned out. <laughs> 2021, I was like, I cannot do this anymore. No matter what happens, no matter what it costs me, I am out. Pulling the ripcord on the parachute, I am out, guys. Uh, Six months for me to realize maybe I could do something. Six months for me to figure out what that could be. And then one year for us to figure out how how to repackage it, resell it, rebuild the team, and do all of those things. That's a lot of time. Could I have done it faster? I don't think so. I just, I just don't think so. And so what I, what I want to be careful of is like, like myself or like Rand Fishkin building his company, anyone listening who's starting out, you don't know what you don't know. So you can't proactively fix these things. You have to build it. You have to make a mess. It has to get bad enough that you're willing to fix it. And then you have to do the hard things to fix it. But every really successful person has gone through this cycle. They've used energy and heart and hustle and just frankly youth to drive something forward and to push it forward. Some people give up too fast. Other people hold on. The people who hold on figure things out. They build sustainability and that's great. But maybe it's crazy. Maybe they're swarming. Maybe they're, everything's on their shoulders. Some people get stuck there forever. Other people go, no, you know what? I want to build something bigger. They build something bigger, but they don't realize what they're signing up for. And then they get there and they realize they hate it. Mm-hmm. Some, some people stay there. Other people go, I hate this. I'm, I'm the entrepreneur. I'm the owner. I'm in control. I can do anything I want. And they blow it all up. And they give themselves freedom. And when they, whatever they choose to go on to next, they choose not to make the same mistakes that they made the first time. But there is no way to know that unless you made the mistakes the first time. And that's where I am now. Now, I might end up having to blow up the second thing or this third thing. I might make mistake after mistake. I'm sure there's lessons I haven't even learned. <laughs> there's, there's ways that I haven't even done this. But, but guys, like, this is what entrepreneurship is and this is what life is. And there's no way around this. So mm-hmm. just like 
embrace it. This is what we all go through that so few entrepreneurs talk about. Yeah. I learned something just within that. So thank you for sharing that. Because I think that's where I'm at, just full transparency in that phase of I hustled the first year and a half. I scaled so fast that I didn't even know what was happening. And then like now it's to a point where what, what do I want this to look like? What do I want? And now you get to choose and you don't have to build it from the hustle mode. And I feel like a lot of people are going through that or like people that I know, friends in the space, we all started at the same time. It's like we all went to school together and then like we're all going through this phase and it's just an ever evolving process. Like you're constantly learning. So that's that's totally it. We're all in these cohorts. Uh, I'm I'm like maybe like a, a grandfather in this space compared to you yeah. guys. But um, you know, like there's all these things that I thought were true that aren't even true. You know, like like I didn't realize until COVID hit that my company could shrink as much as it did, and and we could survive. You know, mm-hmm. we lost seventy percent of our revenue. Wow, we went from twenty four team members to five, and. I mean, at first it was like embarrassing. I'm not embarrassed by that anymore. Like, it does, it, I'm not embarrassed to lose mm-hmm. revenue. Um, I'm not. I'm not embarrassed to have unprofitable years. You know, there was a year where we lost like, a lot. Of, we lost a few hundred thousand dollars cleaning stuff up. Doesn't bother me anymore. Uh, I I had to. I there was a project that we worked before COVID that was worth like a little over four hundred thousand dollars. I spent a year. Securing that four hundred thousand dollars, we got into our bank account in February of twenty twenty, a little over four hundred thousand dollars for this project. It was supposed to start in March of twenty twenty, but got put on hold because of COVID. And by the summertime, we still hadn't really figured out what we were going to do, and we're sitting on this money. And in the meantime, my team was shrinking, my clients were leaving, we were losing everything. I realized that I can't deliver this project profitably. And even though four hundred thousand dollars sounds like a lot of money, um. What we were delivering was really complex. It was, you know, it was a national campaign for a, a huge national government pension plan, right? Like it was a very complex project, and I didn't know what to do. And it's like, I, I finally, I finally went out with my wife uh, for her birthday, and we're climbing down a ski hill in the middle of the summer. So it's like we're just walking down the ski hill, and I go like, "Oh, I've got to give this money back." I like, I, it's, it's just, I, I have to. Like there's no way for us to profitably deliver deliver this. So either my client will force me into bankruptcy, um, or I can figure out a way to steal the money, which doesn't like frankly feel right to me. Um, or I can call up my client and do the hard thing. We do hard things is my motto, right? That's my yeah. podcast, and it's not about running a 10k, which is it could be, but it's it's the hard things we have to do. And so I have to call up my client, and I have to say, listen, I'm this is maybe embarrassing, and I'm sorry, but. I, I I can't deliver this project for you. So either we keep the money and you sue us, we keep the money and you forgive us, you force me into bankruptcy, in which case we will use up the money but not be able to deliver anything, or we figure out a way for me to give you the money back. What do you want to do? And I was embarrassed and I did not want to make that call. But guess what my client said? Mark, are you okay? Like yeah yeah we'll figure out the money we'll figure out the money and stuff like that but but is everything okay man like we've worked together for seven years at that point he's like how are you doing 
And then I had to fire other clients and I felt embarrassed. And they just went, yeah, okay, okay, we'll figure all that stuff out. But they're like, are you okay? Is everything okay? And I didn't know that before. I didn't know that that's how people would react. I didn't know that, I, that it's not embarrassing. You know, you, we can celebrate the growth, but there's nothing wrong with shrinking. There's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with contracting. There's nothing wrong with getting smaller because we're still around, right? Like that's the game. The game is to still be here. The game is to still be standing. It's not to have year over year over year growth all of the time. It's to be the person or the company or the leader who can get through the hard things and say, guys, we took it on the chin, but we're still here. Yeah. And that's, that's the game we want to play. Oh, I love that. Do the hard thing and do the right thing from the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I as a number that. six, I couldn't, I can just be like, in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm sure I can call my lawyer and figure out a way <laughs> to keep this money. But I just like, oh gosh, stealing money from a pension plan. Like I'm not that yeah. dude. I'm not going to yeah. do that. So, uh, and let me tell you the other thing, it was one thing to call my client and to figure it out. It was another thing when four months later, that money left our corporate account. <laughs> but yeah. I'm like, I'm like, oh, doing the right thing. Just really. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, oh, I had a moment of that. dollars disappeared. I had a moment of that. I took on a project and then I sat on it a little bit longer and I had to basically call them up and be like, I can no longer do this. I don't actually think it's a good fit. And it's just like, it's hard, but they appreciate and respect you more. Yeah. Yeah. And so listen, I hope, um, I hope audience you've taken some away from this. I mean, I think that it's the greatest path we can take. I think that entrepreneur, unlike maybe athletes, maybe military, but an entrepreneur, unlike uh, other careers or jobs, we are forced to constantly assess our, our weaknesses. We are forced to constantly try and problem solve and come up with the better solution and grow and become the people that we want to become or need to become to get what we want. And uh, so I think it's like just a never ending process of, of like growth. And, and frankly, like at a pace that no other career seems to have. Uh, and so I love it. I think it's the greatest thing. I don't think it's for everyone. Um, but if, if, if anything in my message, it's like, this takes time. You have to be patient. It sucks most of the time. <laughs> but, but at the same time, it's like awesome most of the time. And it's on you to, to reduce as much suck as possible because no one else is going to do it for you. And it's on you to shape this into the thing that you really love um, because no one else is going to do it for you. (laughs) I love that so much. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I love this conversation. I hope you guys loved it just as much. And there's so many golden nuggets in this, but I just want to thank you for coming on the show um, and sharing your knowledge, sharing your wisdom. Where can everyone find you and connect with you? Well, if you want to check out the podcast, We Do Hard Things, head over to YouTube. Uh, it's on the audio apps as well, but We Do Hard Things with Mark Drager. Uh, it's a pretty kick-ass YouTube show. Uh, and if you want to connect with me one-on-one, head over to Instagram. My handle is at Mark Drager. Send me a DM. Let me know if this hit you in, in the feels. Uh, and there's no bot. There's no funnel. There's no VA. I'm, <laughs> I'm like, I'm really, I hate, I'm really bad at social media. So send me a note and it's, it's like me responding. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Well, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Courtney. As always, thanks for listening. And if you love this podcast, 
Don't forget to subscribe or leave a review on iTunes and share it with a friend or on Instagram to help support the show. If you want additional resources to help you grow your business, you can find them on my website at CourtneyMarieCo.com or below in the show notes.